thank you very, very much. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you. Right back at you, sir. Well, I, I want to let everybody know this is the Hot Dish Podcast. The Hot Dish Podcast is brought to you by One Country Project. And I'm Senator Joe Donnelly, former Senator Joe Donnelly from Indiana and uh, co-founder of One Country Project with Senator Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota. And our goal is to try to make sure that the Democratic Party can connect with rural voters to understand our rural communities and in turn for our rural communities to understand um, the policies in place from the Democratic Party to try to make lives better in rural communities and to make the future brighter for everybody. We have um, a, a real treat. We're really, really lucky today to have someone who I consider uh, a friend, who I consider a warrior for our country, who has fought nonstop in, in, um, in combat in the halls of Capitol Hill and um, never any guaranteed outcomes and he never stopped, never stopped fighting. And I'm so proud of all the work that um, he has done. Um, my friend, Paul Reichkopf. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Senator, real pleasure. Thank you so much. Right now, I've been uh, fighting life with two kids under four years old. So that's been uh, <laughs> the toughest battle so far. far is having Let me tell you what. What you do is you just say yes, my friend. <laughs> I, I'll take your advice, sir. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for all you've done for our country over the years for the service you provided. When I was in the House um, and in the Senate, I knew this. I knew veterans had no better friend. I knew our um, men and women in combat had no better friend and no tougher fighter. And if you weren't uh, shooting square with our vets and, and with our service men and women, um, Paul would be on you and, and rightfully so. And so, um, Paul, you know, one of the things one country does is, is focus on rural issues. But I, I have to ask you, because I've seen your voice so strong on this. Um, it has astonished me like almost nothing I've ever seen before. Um, this, this whole question of uh, the Russians paying, um, paying the Taliban to uh, go after our men and women. And it seems to me there's been an awful lot of silence um, from the White House. And I, I think that both you and I, the, the second we would have heard something like that, it would have been really, really clear that you make one move on this against one person and um, there's going to be hell to pay. And all we seem to hear is quiet, Paul. Yeah, I think that's right, sir. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the interesting, important and maybe frustrating part about the work that I've done throughout my whole career is that it's always nonpartisan. You know, I'm an independent and I think many veterans out there, folks in the military are independent, unaffiliated. They don't claim a party. And if they do, they always put their country above party. And this is one of those issues that really cuts to the core of, of what I think is wrong with the president, what's wrong with the White House and what's wrong with Washington. I mean, we have a situation where it appears the Russians paid bounties to kill U.S. troops. As many as three from my home state of New York may have been killed as a result of Russian bounties. And the president would love it to go away. Um, you know, he, he hasn't issued a statement of support to our troops. Uh, he hasn't condemned the action. He hasn't told the world, hey, if you put a bounty on Americans' heads, there'll be hell to pay. He hasn't said anything about that. And I think, frankly, the only thing that's more frustrating 
is that it seems like all of Congress is okay with letting it fly by. I mean, there are voices like Tammy Duckworth, who it's good to see her out in the spotlight now as a rumored candidate for VP. Um, but I think a lot of Americans have, have turned the page. And I think a lot of folks, frankly, on both in both parties have turned the page. So I want to see the president dragged before Congress. I want to know what he knew, when he knew, and why he didn't do anything about it. Uh, I also want to see the Secretary of Defense held accountable. You know, he was pulled before Congress about a week and a half ago, but he pretty much dodged all the questions. He didn't accept responsibility. He didn't promise to get to the bottom of it. And these are one. Of, this is one of those issues, Senator, that should cut across all partisan lines, all geography. Every American should be outraged because, on a very basic level, even if even if this isn't true, there is a statement sent to the rest of the world that it's okay to put bounties out there because Trump won't come after you. Trump won't make you pay for it. So I think, unfortunately, there are probably bounties on American soldiers flying all across the globe right now. And that's bad for our, for our, for our troops, but it's also bad for our national security. And it cuts to the core of what bothers me so much about this president and, and our, our current situation. And, and like you said, this has nothing to do with one political party or the other. These young men and women who come from uh, New York, where you're from, Indiana, where I'm from, I'm from, from all around the country – Whenever I was with them, Paul, um, my promise to them was I would do everything humanly possible to make sure what they had, uh, they needed, they had, what their mission was, was the right one, that they had uh, the opportunity to find out clearly what their mission was, to have the right training, to to give it everything they have. And, you know, none of us could ever guarantee you, you come home safe. But what we can guarantee is we'll give you everything we humanly have to make that happen. And this is this is like the most unthinkable thing I could think of. I, I, I was stunned in every way when I heard it. Well, it's also gut check time because, I, you know, as an independent, I don't have an allegiance to the Democratic Party right. or the Republican Party. And I'm kind of in a unique position here. You, you have an allegiance to the country. Well, you know, and, and I think that, that, that this is a bit of, of chickens coming home to roost because Everybody except for nine senators voted to confirm Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. And he had been a Raytheon lobbyist. He, he hadn't been uh, the kind of formidable, retired four-star general, someone like a, a, a General Mattis. This was a guy who had been a Washington insider for most of his career. And, and in a very poignant moment during his confirmation hearing, Senator Elizabeth Warren asked him, will you recuse yourself from any Raytheon business? And he said, no. He said, no. And at that point, I thought every senator should have voted against him because that showed you where his allegiances were. And ever since that moment, he was confirmed. Only nine senators voted against him. And, and, and ever since then, he sided with the president instead of our troops. He sided with the politicians instead of with our war fighters. And that's transcended everything from allowing them to pull $10 billion from the Pentagon and moving it down to Trump's wall, to abandoning our NATO allies, to leaving the Kurds on the battlefield, to even now... 10,000 U.S. troops are being moved out of Germany, which only benefits Russia. So, you know, we know that rural communities disproportionately contribute to our military. Um, But this is an issue that really should unite rural, suburban, urban communities together because we're all sending our men and women to fight. And, And if they can't be protected by not only the president, but the secretary of defense and the entire apparatus of political appointees, then we're failing on our most basic promise. And it it extends to the VA too, which I'm sure you're going to want to talk about. But I think the underreported story 
over the last couple of years, and especially around the coronavirus, are the failures of the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Robert Wilkie, who are extremely partisan, more partisan than anybody we've ever seen. And our troops and our veterans, no matter where they live, whether it's North Dakota, Indiana, or New York, are paying the price. Yeah, I've always thought that the best politics is to simply serve your people well to do the right job the right way. And I thought, the, this is the last thing I'll say on this because we don't have all, all day on it, but it's so critical. I thought the first thing the president should have done was pick up the phone, call Putin and say, listen, if one hair on one head is harmed, all hell is going to break loose for you, for your country, for, uh, for everybody involved with, with um, your government. And um, we will not rest till there's a public apology for the things you've done and to make sure that nobody has been hurt or will be hurt. I put it uh, even farther, Senator. He, he needs yeah. to say that from the Oval Office or from right. the ring so that the whole world can hear it, right? If it's another yeah. private phone call with Putin or another back-channel conversation, the message is not sent to the world. And I think there's an important piece here that I just want to make sure I make, sir. Right? A lot of Democrats especially are saying, you know what? Paul, call me Joe. So. You go. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of Democrats are saying, you know, let's wait till the fall. The election's coming. No, no. It looks like Biden may be in place in, in January. But I just want to remind people that this accountability needs to happen now because it can get worse. We've seen when you have derelict leaders in place at the secretary of defense level or at the president, it can get worse. And if you're OK to just wait till maybe the election or wait till January, wait till a new crew is inaugurated next January. Remember, this president has his finger on our nukes. It can get worse. There are nukes involved. He, he rattles sabers all the time. So if you're willing to kind of lay back and think, you know what, we can get through the next couple of months and then there'll be accountability. We can't wait. This well, is accountability now. And I, I'm going to continue to push for hearings uh, and for pressure on the White House on this issue specifically and many others. But this cuts to the core of the compact with our democracy and our, and our, and our very national security integrity that's at stake right now. And the other reason we can't wait is our young men and women are still in Afghanistan right now. As you and I are doing this, um, they are in harm's way. And we have to make sure we've done everything humanly possible um, to protect them. Uh, Paul, you've done so much um, for our service members, for our veterans. Um, Iraq, uh, IAVA, Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America. Tell us about that. Well, that's the group I founded when I got back from Iraq in 2004, and, and we've really become the next generation of the veteran service organizations. I transferred to the board about a year ago, and there's a fantastic CEO there now, a Navy veteran named Jeremy Butler, who's leading the charge. But for 14 years, you know, I, I led that organization. It was the greatest honor of my life. But we felt like our generation, the post 9-11 generation, needed a voice. Uh, a unique voice. You know, we represented almost 3 million men and women who've served since 9-11. And, and every generation uh, has their, their new set of issues, challenges, and opportunities. And IAVA stepped in to fill that void. So we worked with, you know, you and others to help pass the GI Bill, the new GI Bill. We pushed for VA reform, expanded mental health, better support for women veterans, uh, homelessness, all the issues that, that you hope would transcend party. And for the most part, they did. You know, it was a rare occasion, but on occasion, we could actually get, you know, Jeff Miller and and, and uh, Tim Walls together from the House Veterans Affairs Committee on the same stage. We could get John McCain and, and Blumenthal together on the same stage. We had them all on the same stage for a, a signing ceremony, right? That only happened around veterans issues. And that was the power of what IAVA and the VFW and American Legion and others could do. Uh, but I also think they, 
that these folks represent a new generation of leaders. It's exciting to hear Tommy, Tammy Duckworth rumored uh, as a candidate for VP. Uh, she's a you know decorated uh, combat veteran, a helicopter pilot who lost both of her legs. But she would be our first uh, leader of this generation to ascend to that high office. Pete Buttigieg was another example, I think, that represented our community well. They come from both parties. But I think it's really, really exciting to understand that these folks have been tested by combat, tested by adversity, now tested by COVID. And if there's a generation of leaders that can step up, it's them. If you're looking for hope and maybe a silver lining from the last couple of years of, of tumult, it's these men and women. And that, that's what our work's been all about. And I think it can be a source of hope in these precarious times, especially. Well, uh, Paul, Pete is Pete Buttigieg is from my hometown of um, South Bend, Indiana. We're really proud of him. And I, I had the privilege of serving with um, Senator Tammy Duckworth. And um, she's the definition of an American hero who serves with grace, who serves with um, modesty, who has looked out for our veterans at every turn, who has looked out for our men and women who are currently serving at every turn. And in literally um, gave, gave parts of her body and in so much of her life, uh, to keep our nation safe. And, and you look and you go, there's the epitome of, of an American hero and American servant. Yep. I think, I think that's right, sir. And you know what else? There's a realness about her, right. That kind of cuts through politics. And I think, you know, folks in, in rural areas, especially want to hear straight talk. They want to hear people who care about their country first. And that's, you know, what your work is about now. And I was lucky enough to have uh, Mayor Buttigieg on my podcast, really, when he was at the apex of his popularity. We had a really great event, an audience full of veterans. And we created my show, Angry Americans, because we felt like there were a lot of folks that were part of the independent middle that were angry and didn't have a voice uh, and we wanted to make the politicians come to us. So I was happy that Pete came on my show. We talked about national security. We talked about his service. And I've also had folks like Megan McCain come on as well, because I really think that bringing people together around these issues and speaking in a, in a plain speak that transcends politics is important. And I think that's Pete's appeal. I mean, he, he really, you know, he could run as an independent. He's obviously got some progressive values, but he appealed to Republicans because he was a straight shooter. Uh, Tammy brings that same breath of fresh air. And I think the Democrats would be smart to put more of these national security folks out in front to represent the new face of, of the party. That's I say that as, a, as an American, not as a Democrat. Well, one of the great, um, great things when I was um, serving in the House and in the Senate was working with you and, and um, having served on the Vets Committee and the Armed Services Committee. One of the things we always did um, and it was because we wanted the, the, the real skinny on something as we always said, well, what does IAVA think about this? What, what does Paul think about this? And one of the, um, one of the areas in particular that we worked on, um, was suicide prevention. And, um, I was able or fortunate to be able to, um, have the Jacob Sexton military suicide prevention act for active duty members and you pushed so hard for the Clay Hunt suicide, um, suicide bill to prevent veterans from uh, taking their lives. And, and as you know, and as we all know, the, the staggering, staggering total and staggering pain that has come from that. Um, would you tell us a little bit about um, Clay Hunt and about your work on that and how it all came to fruition on that day? When, when we had the signing ceremony? Sure, sure. Clay Hunt was a, a friend of mine. He was an activist. He was a Marine Corps sniper, grew up outside of Houston, Texas. 
uh, had done multiple deployments, actually joined me and a group of veterans uh, as an activist meeting with uh, First Lady Michelle Obama. When the Obamas were in the White House, we went there to talk about mental health and to talk about suicide. And then tragically, a few late years later, we lost Clay to suicide. And, and after we lost Clay, we were, we were devastated. He was a guy who was out there fighting for other veterans and was still experiencing this tremendous pain. And I sat down with his mom and, and, and his family in, in Houston. We were at a barbecue joint and I said, hey, you know, we wanna do something to honor Clay. We wanna try to make change. Would you be okay if we, if we named this bill after Clay? And, and his mom said, yes. And she said, you know, I'm tired of mourning. I'm ready to get to work. And, and Susan, his mom was, was incredible. I mean, she represents the best of what can happen in Washington. She was testifying before Congress. She was on cable TV. She was rallying members of both sides of the aisle. And it was a mom who had never been in Washington before, really. And, and she helped us pass this historic piece of legislation. That was that moment when we were all at the White House together, you know, and, and Nancy Pelosi and Jeff Miller on the same stage together with John McCain and, and you and so many others made that made that possible. So it was it was a historic moment. Uh, it, it wasn't enough. We still need much more work. We're losing somewhere around 20 veterans a day to suicide of all generations. Uh, and just to compound the challenge, I mean, when I'm talking about Secretary Wilkie, who is the VA secretary right now, he said last week that Trump was the first president since the 1890s to recognize the veteran suicide crisis. And this attraction and I pushed back and we all sent a bunch of screenshots and say, look, Obama definitely didn't do enough, but he did something. And there was a, a nationally televised signing ceremony that maybe you missed. Um, but I think it cuts to the core of what concerns me right now about this crew is that they politicize everything. You know, it's as though Trump is the only guy who ever cared about veterans, the only guy who's ever done anything. And I think another side of it, Joe, is, is that they've really politicized some of the core issues that shouldn't be politicized, like, for example, the response to COVID. We are losing thousands of veterans to the virus. Many of the older folks that we're losing in nursing homes are World War II veterans and Korea veterans. And we've seen an explosion inside the VA, almost 300% in cases over the last 45 days or so. So the VA was slow to respond, just like the president was. They, they reopened too soon. They didn't emphasize testing. As of right now, they've only tested about 300,000 veterans across the entire country on a system of 9 million veterans. And if 300,000 sounds like a lot, let me break it down for you. The state of New York does that in five days. So the federal agency of the VA with hundreds of billions of dollars has taken seven or eight months to do what New York does in five days. So they're not testing, they're not screening, they're not reporting data well. And at the end of the day, veterans are dying. So we've been saying this, you know, Wilkie lied, vets died. Trump lied, vets died. That's how high the stakes are. And I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat or an independent, you should understand that this is a kind of core issue. We need appropriate, nonpartisan, effective response. And I wish I could tell you that it's going to be good in the days ahead, but I am really concerned that because of their slow response and because of the high risk of so many of these older veterans, we're going to lose a lot more. The fall and the winter could be very bad. We just recognized the anniversary of D-Day, uh, and we're not recognizing how many D-Day veterans we're losing every day. So, you know, I know you're going to continue to advocate for it, Joe, but it's one of those core patriotic, nonpartisan issues that we've really got to hold this White House accountable on. And we've got to hold the Democrats accountable on, too. They've got to force this issue, and the media's got to cover it. Seventy-three veterans died in one facility in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Seventy-three. 
And, and every day there were new names coming out and they were just losing them one by one by one. And we didn't even get so much as a press conference or a response from the president. So I think it cuts to the core of how they continue to politicize veterans, the military and these issues because they think it's popular. They think it resonates with rural voters and, and with Republican voters and with people all across the country. But they're hiding the ball. They're not showing you the true scope of what's happening. And if there's one thing I leave folks with, it's I hope they recognize and understand. If you're thinking about maybe I don't want to wear a mask, do it for that Normandy veteran. Do it for that veteran that was at Iwo Jima. Do it for the veterans in your community who are going to be at higher risk from this disease because they're really, really in a tough spot right now. As you look at this, um, the numbers are so stark. I sat down and um, at 100,000, Paul, and, and you know this, when it was 100,000 that we had lost nationwide, that's more than we had lost in Vietnam, plus Korea, plus Iraq, plus Afghanistan together. And so many of them were veterans that we had lost as well. And now we're over 140,000. And, and my fear, and I actually, I don't think it's a fear, it's a fact, is that the things we need to do, we need to wear masks. As you said, um, if, if you don't like wearing a mask, think about this. Think about the fact that you wear the mask may save that vet who, um, who stormed the beaches on D-Day, who was at Iwo Jima, who was at Guadalcanal, who was um, in, in, uh, in Saigon, who was uh, in Coast Province in Afghanistan. That's who you're doing it for. You know, you know, if you don't care enough about yourself, just do it for your neighbor. And, and once somebody has it to do the tracing that we need to do this thing, the solutions are clear. We just need to see people having the will to do what needs to be done. And if we do, we can control us. If not, we're heading for 200,000, Paul, and so many more veterans who will be lost. I, I think that's right, sir. I mean, you know, I, in the early days of this, I was on you know, the news networks talking about it. We've covered it on my podcast every single week. And I said at the outset, there, there can be a cavalry here. The Department of Defense and the Veterans Affairs Department can be a two-pronged cavalry to help America beat the virus. If they are activated, if they are mobilized, if they are well-led, they can be a one-two punch. And you saw in the early days in New York, for example, active duty military units were sending field hospitals, right? And when there was too much uh, overflow at civilian hospitals, the VA actually has a mission to take civilian patients. So if you're listening right now, and your local hospital gets backed up and they don't have enough beds for you, the VA is supposed to be there to be your backstop, to be America's safety net. If those two prongs were activated properly, we would be in a very different situation. Instead, President Trump has the My Pillow guy up at press conferences, and he's talking about CBS instead of talking about the Veterans Affairs Department and, and the Department of Defense. If the Pentagon had been fully mobilized in a positive way to do testing, to do food distribution, to do whatever was necessary to support our citizens, we would be in a very different place. Instead, you've got a president who's deploying the National Guard to clear out you know, civilian peaceful protesters so he can do a photo op. And so I really am bothered, and I think all Americans should be troubled by the choice by the commander in chief about how he's used our military. We could have been the cavalry. We could have been the people coming in to save everybody. Instead, a lot of Americans are rightfully scared they're worried that, that, that the National Guard is going to beat their head in or that the 82nd Airborne is going to shoot tear gas at them. And that's not our troops' fault. They have maybe never been in a more difficult position than when they're asked to stand and guard a monument or get put in a political situation by the president. But that's the choice of the commander in chief. 
And that's where I think he has to be held to the highest standard, not just the deaths, but also the politicization and the, the sheer danger and moral conflict he continues to put our troops in. But that was a choice. These two agencies could have been our heroes. And instead, right now, they're, they're the source of a huge problem. It, the, the VA hospitals alone continue to reopen. And now they're seeing more infections. So when Trump reopens a state, he's usually reopening the VAs in those states, too, which are going to cause us huge problems long term. And you know what um, I've always tried to tell folks, and I know you have, too, is, look, don't judge someone who says how much they care about the military by having a, a military parade with another plane flying by or by um, getting them the, uh, the next biggest tank or whatever. Judge them by the commitment they make to suicide prevention. Judge them by the commitment they make to make sure that um, they can get the educational benefits they need. Judge them by making sure that they are put in the right mission for the right reason in the right place. And so there's, there's, you know what I've always found is, is um, and this is a bit of a generalization, but the ones who always talk about how much they care about the military and how, how, how uh, incredible they are in taking care of them, usually the more you talk, um, it's, it's like the reverse. When people talk less about it, they usually do more about it. When people are talking all the time about how awesome they are, it's like you better check the back door of your shop. Yeah, well, the, we have an old saying that in, in politics, babies, puppies, and vets are winners, right? Everybody wants to get their picture taken with a baby, you know, get a puppy in the campaign ad or use veterans, you know, at, at your rallies. And, and there is a unique and very powerful populism to the military and veterans in America. Everybody loves our troops. Everybody loves our vets. Now, the, the good politicians will listen to those communities. They won't politicize them and they'll work with them hand in hand to get things done and, and recognize that they're also not victims. They're not a charity, they're an investment. But what we've seen, especially from this president, is an unprecedented politicization of the military. You know, he, he actually said this week when it was about the, uh, the renaming of the Confederate monuments, he was interviewed by Chris Wallace. And Chris Wallace said, you know, the military wants to change the names of these uh, military bases that are named after traitorous racist from the Confederacy. And Trump actually said, I don't care what the military thinks. That's what he said. And he finally said it. He finally tipped his hand because he's not listening to General Mattis. That's why he left. He's not listening to the chairman of Joint Chiefs, General Milley. He's not listening to the retired generals. He's really doing his own thing. And instead, he's doing photo ops where he makes the entire graduating class from West Point return to West Point during a pandemic so he can do a photo op. So he can stand up there and talk about being in support of the military. But when it comes down to it, the rubber meets the road around how you deliver. And, and there's a lot of folks that probably listen to your show, Joe, that have sons and daughters or, or nieces and nephews or cousins out there that are in the military. And they're the ones that should really pierce it for you. When you go to the voting booth, think about who's really going to take care of them and who's really going to listen to them, empower them and set them up to be the future of America. You know, wouldn't it be nice for our young men and women who are joining right now to go off for basic training to Fort Clay Hunt or go off to basic training at Fort John McCain instead, of some, of, instead of some of the other names or, or a fort named after a base named after some of the amazing uh, nurses who gave their lives in service in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan to keep our men and women safe. Um, those are American heroes. People of honor recipients. You know, there are people out there that, that, that right. are free of recognition. And it's important. Some folks don't get this, okay? The Confederates were traitors. 
They, they took up arms against America, okay? It would be like if a state seceded tomorrow and started shooting at Indiana and shooting at California and shooting at, at Texas. You know, so, so everybody, even who understands their, their military history, must understand that the Confederate generals that these bases are named after were traitors. They obviously compounded racism and, and propelled slavery, but on a very basic level, they were the antithesis of the military values. They sold us out. And therefore, they should not have bases named after them when 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds are learning about the values of the military. They should be learning about someone like John McCain instead. And that is why this is so important. It's not just about the name. They can change the post office. They can change the, the, the paperwork, okay? But it's about the message that it sends to those young men and women who are, who are joining the military for the very first time. And that message that it burns in their brains that will stay with them for the rest of their careers. Well, as you know, um, our rural communities throughout the country have sent an awful lot of young men and women um, to serve in our military. They have um, sent a lot of, of incredibly talented folks. Um, you, you know, you, someone from the uh, plains of Nebraska uh, winds up in a submarine. You know, someone from, uh, someone from uh, the cornfields of Iowa is is um, a, a gunner in an in an Air Force uh, jet, and so we've had um, amazing uh, amazing partnership with our rural communities. Obviously, with all communities throughout the country, but um, you've seen a lot of our rural communities. There's a real spirit there for our military, isn't there, Paul? There is, and you know, about a quarter of all veterans, I think, in the U.S. Uh, come back to rural communities. You know, there's actually, as, as you know, there, there's an office of rural health within the VA that's focused specifically on these issues. Those are communities that feel casualties more. Uh, you know, they have that really you know, distinct connection. Often th- these are folks that are legacies, their father, their grandfather, grandmother were in the military. Uh, and they represent a backbone of the military. And they also represent an opportunity for innovation. You know, telehealth, as an example, the, the ability to use technology like we're using right now to record this podcast. You know, we can now use it for mental health support, uh, for all kinds of medical support for folks that are in rural areas, whether it's a World War II veteran or a 20 year old that just got back from Afghanistan. So I I think our rural communities have always been the front line fighters for our military. They've also been the front line of innovation. And and I'm really looking to them now for leadership. I think it can be a very exciting place where, where problems will get solved. Uh, whether it's around COVID or, or mental health. And, and it's really an exciting place uh, for our veterans and our military community, especially. Paul, what are the, some of the things that, um, you know, in the time we have, I, I'd love to hear from you on when you look at the VA, what, are, you know, what's the top two or three things you'd like to see them uh, do better, have their act together better, provide better care for our men and women. Um, obviously, uh, psychological services, having enough, um, having enough assistance there for, for those who are, who are in need, who are crying out. But, but uh, give us a list of the th- kind of things that you look at that you say, look, we need to jump on this and jump on it right now. Well, I've got a unique position. Now that I'm not running a veteran service organization, I'm in the media, I can kind of follow this from a different vantage point. And the thing that I focus a lot, Joe, in my podcast and in my work now, my writing is about leadership. And, and I think the single most important defining item in every part of our government right now is leadership, whether it's the Department of Education and Betsy DeVos or the Veterans Affairs Department and, and Robert Wilkie. We need strong leadership. And the number one thing I'd like to see is a new VA secretary, because VA Secretary Wilkie has not been honest 
Uh, he cannot be trusted. He has politicized everything. He always has Trump first and veterans second. And to underscore an issue we didn't even get to, the VA has been testing hydroxychloroquine, Trump's uh, you know, uh, controversial uh, uh, medical, his, his proclaimed snake oil to solve the, the, the symptoms and problems of COVID-19, completely unproven, banned in some states, uh, dismissed by the WHO. But Trump was talking for a long time about how he was taking hydroxychloroquine, and he was recommending others do the same. What most Americans don't know is they were also testing it on dying veterans at the VA. And they lied about it. They were not transparent about it. Eventually, they started to admit that they were testing it. But Wilkie has said it works. There is no science to prove it. We had to pull the information out of him. We don't know why veterans were tested, which veterans weren't. We found out recently in Pennsylvania that about a dozen veterans were, had the, the, the medicine tested on them, and they didn't even have COVID. So I think this cuts to the core of transparency. We can't trust our VA secretary. He needs to go. We need to put somebody else in there. So that's item number one. Number two is they need a total rehaul of their strategy to battle COVID because nothing is taking the lives of more veterans right now than COVID-19 older veterans especially. And then I think the number three item has is, is got to be suicide, Joe. But but I don't think you can underestimate the importance of a, of, a, of a leader. If we had, let's say, a Pete Buttigieg or a Tammy Duckworth in charge of the VA tomorrow, the, the entire culture of the VA would change. And we'd have someone who, instead of defending Trump, was defending our veterans, someone who could be out there right now making this case, saying, hey, wear a mask so grandpa who served at Normandy doesn't die. It's very straightforward, very simple. That's the kind of case we could be having made by the VA secretary. Instead, he's testing Trump's snake oil on dying veterans and lying about it. So I, I really think we got to cut to that core of accountability, Joe. And I think the media, even your podcast, talking about it will help us bring sunlight to, to, to pull some of that out. Tell me a little bit about vote vets. Um, you know, Vote Vets started, uh, I believe, in 2006. You know, they used to be associated with us at IABA. We had a, a PAC, a political action committee called the IABA PAC. And uh, some of the guys over there wanted to do more partisan work. So they broke off and started Vote Vets. So they're really, you know, a progressive political action committee that comes from the left. Uh, there was a group called Vets for Freedom on the right. And, you know, I view them almost as proxies. Uh, you know, in the old days, you had Swift Vote Vets for Truth. They came after John Kerry. Now you've got Vote Vets that's going to go after Donald Trump. Um, you know, they have a role to play. I would urge people to stay more in touch with the less political organizations. You know, the VSOs that are holding the line out there that I think are making the case from a nonpartisan standpoint. But Vote Vets is spending money. They've been big behind Tammy Duckworth. Uh, I think they'll probably continue to do that as long as she's in consideration. What they do after that, we'll see. But uh, they're going to be a political actor on this complex and convoluted battlefield for sure. How much has um, IAVA coordinated with groups like the American Legion, VFW, AMVETS, um, and others? Because um, I know IAVA has had such a strong voice in standing up for our vets to make sure they have every opportunity. And um, I know our other service organizations have done the same thing. We do, we do a ton together, and I think it's really important. You know, it took a while for us to get accepted in the old boys club, and unfortunately, it's still almost all boys, right? I mean, we, we, we were an important voice because we represent about 20% women, which was, you know, new for the older veteran service organizations. But now they all work together. Uh, there's a group called the Military Coalition that you know well that brings together most of the leading VSOs, and, and for the most part, they're aligned on issues. Uh, you know, I, I think the older groups move a little more slowly, 
uh, and the newer groups tend to use technology and social media a bit more aggressively. Um, but they're all a very, very important and for the most part, united and formidable force. It's important to know, too, you know, Trump hasn't been listening to the BFW or the Legion either, which tend to, to skew a little bit more conservative. Um, and, and he's been, I think, disconnected from from all these groups, which for the most part in past years, the president would meet every year with the, with the American Legion commander every year with the VFW commander. You wouldn't dare say no to those folks. But Trump's even even pushed them away. But the upside is. All generations of veterans generally stick together, and those veteran service organizations have never been more important, and they need your donations. Like right now, they're helping veterans with COVID. They're helping veterans uh, face you know, suicide and homelessness. There was a, a Navy ship that was on fire uh, in San Diego for a week last week. Those right. need help, and it's the BSOs, the nonprofit BSOs that step up, so you can volunteer your time, your money, your energy, and, and it's always a good way to give back. Their one focus has always been, how do we make life better for our veterans, for their families, and that the service and effort that uh, has been given by all of these men and women um, never be forgotten. Paul, is there any subject that I haven't touched on today that you'd like to mention? Uh, you know, I, I, I know that you guys are, are Democrats, and this is a show that focuses a lot on Democratic politics, but I also... <laughs> You know, we're we're not we're, we're kind of bipartisan Democrats. Well, I think that's actually what I was going to say is that you know your brand of democratic politics, right? Uh, and Senator Heitkamp's and, and others, I, I think you all represent uh, maybe an under recognized part of our national dialogue. You know, I, I have many mentors uh, that, that are Democrats and Republicans. I was lucky enough to work with John McCain, but I also know you know Bob Kerry very well, who, who ran for president, was a Navy SEAL, and you know, senator and governor from Nebraska. I think that the American public needs to hear more from the moderate voices of both parties, uh, but also recognize that, that, that the parties don't have to be a barrier. You know, my show is called Angry Americans because we say if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There is an angry middle in this country. Forty percent of this country is unaffiliated, doesn't claim a party. And I want folks to know that that doesn't mean you shouldn't be in the game. You know, we, we can get better candidates than Howard Schultz or Justin Amash or Kanye. Right. If we work together as independents, we can have a stronger, uh, more impactful voice. And, and I hope that those folks that are on the fringes can get in the game, especially right now. We need everybody on board this fall to defeat Trump. I don't think that's a partisan issue at this point. I think it's about, uh, you know, an existential threat in the future of our country. But beyond that, I think there's a really exciting landscape for folks who know that you don't have to be Donald Trump or AOC. There is an alternative in the middle. Uh, and, and that's a, a lane for people who want to get involved in politics, whether it's at the national level or just your local school board, school board. We need leaders. Uh, and Mr. Rogers, I, I famously quote in my show all the time. He used to say, when things get bad, look for the helpers. And I say now in times like this, look for the helpers. They're out there and we need more of those helpers. And I encourage anybody who's listening to your show to, to be a helper and help the helpers. I just want to tell you one small story about John McCain, who was such a dear friend to so many of us, to you and, and to me. He and I had just left Afghanistan. Um, he, um, he was part of um, a reenlistment ceremony on July 4th. Joe, uh, General Dunford was uh, in charge of the mission in Afghanistan at the time, but we were on our way home and we, we stopped in another country after being in Afghanistan and, and went to grab a bite to eat. And, um, as you well know, and as, as America knows, 
John McCain was was badly beaten as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam, was um, was incredibly dedicated to his um, his fellow service members who, when the North Vietnamese came and said, look, you're you're the son of an admiral. You can go. He goes, I wait my turn. Well, we were at dinner, uh, Paul, and as uh, as we were getting ready to go, his uh, his assistant was there with him. And, and you'll see why he had an assistant in just a minute, and you already know. Um, as he was getting up, he said, I think I need to comb my hair, Joe, he said to mm-hmm. me. He said, okay. And his, his assistant came over and, and combed. He said, I need my hair combed because he was beaten so badly. Yep. He could not lift either arm, either shoulder, like up above halfway above his chest. Yep. That he... He had for, for what, Paul, 50, 60 years, not been able to lift his hands up toward his face because his shoulders were broken. He was beaten so badly. And every day he came back to do everything he could, could for our country. And, and that's what you're talking about is putting our country first to do what's right. And when you do what's right for a country, everything else seems to fall into place. I, I think that that says it well. So yeah, I've been around him. I watched him, you know, have trouble getting his coat on and, and you know, picking up a pen and a microphone, all those sorts of things that he never complained. You know, he, he represented the best of us. And I think we miss him a lot right now. We miss a lot of the voices like that from both parties that represented moderates and, and brought people together and also had that commonality of experience that put country above party. Uh, I actually had his daughter, Megan McCain, on my show a couple months ago and, and I consider her a friend and, 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 you know, I've been trying to pull people together from, from both parties on my show and in everything we're doing at Angry Americans and with Righteous Media to try to br- build bridges. And I think that's, that's what McCain did. He was a bridge builder. Uh, he was a straight shooter. And, and there's a new generation that can follow his lead and follow your lead and follow Bob Carey's lead. And, and we're going to need him right now. You know, we're going to need those, those ghosts of John McCain. He, he would be out there haunting us still and, and, and kicking us in the butt and pushing us to do more. That's the kind of guy he was. And we're going to need those fighters to get us through the next couple of months and whatever comes afterwards. So I'm glad you recognized him for that because most folks didn't see it. Um, but, but now we need it more than ever, that kind of tenacious leadership, that kind of selfless service. We say in the military, leaders eat last. And that's what John McCain did. He ate last and most leaders eat last. And that's what we need in the White House coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Rykoff, who has done so much for our country, he um, is uh, has his own media company, Righteous Media, has his own podcast, Angry American, and um, has served our country nobly and well. God bless you, my friend. I hope to see you soon, and may God bless America. Thank you, sir. Back to you as well, and all the best to your family.